A lot can happen in seven days. Woo! Including a mic that's really hot. Let me try that again. A lot can happen in seven days. Just stop and think for a moment. A phone call of a recent medical checkup that you had. Or maybe you get a text that a new granddaughter has been born, like my wife and I had last Saturday. That was fun. Maybe you'll get an email or there'll be a social media notification that changes you. A lot can happen in seven days. Just over two years ago in a hotel room in Minneapolis, mid-February, my youngest son looked at me and he said, Dad, this situation in China called COVID, it might be a big deal. It may come to the United States. It might change a lot of things. Boy, was he right. You understand that. A lot can happen in seven days, and it sure did in the life of a particular person. The person I'm talking about split history in half between B.C. and A.D., and he is the one that we have worshipped and we have adored. We have sung about the one who is not a sentimental token, nice religious figure, but one who is living, who is breathing, who is conquering, and his name is Jesus. And he says to all, follow me. A lot happened in Jesus' life in seven days. Those seven days are called Holy Week by the church. Other traditions use a phrase called the passion of the Lord. Passion used in this sense is not a pursuit or a commitment or being driven for something, but rather in this sense, it means suffering, being crushed. One who did that willingly and he died on the cross. Why did he do that? He died on the cross for your sins and mine. It cost him his life. And this Sunday, I will ask you, what will you do with, with him? Follow him. This message, there will be three easy words for you to grab onto and remember this message if you desire. Three easy words, you, me, and him. You, me, and him. First of all, think of all the yous that happened in seven days leading up to Easter. Of all the people who encountered Jesus listed in the New Testament and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, who would you like to meet? Who would you like to have a chance to visit with? You heard about one right away when Eric read to us the scriptures. That person was Mary Magdalene. The Bible tells us that Jesus healed her of demonic dysfunction and extreme hellish possession. In fact, Luke's gospel written by a physician states that she was formerly infected and overtaken by seven demons. Can you imagine? Jesus, she ended up traveling with Jesus and his disciples. And actually, Mary Magdalene is mentioned more than even some of the disciples like Bartholomew and Thaddeus. In John chapter 20 that we read, you heard that Mary was overwhelmed, was overwhelmed. She didn't even know Jesus when Jesus was speaking to her. If you've had doubts, you and Mary could connect but what would you think about being in Peter's shoes? Can you feel the awkward tension in yourself like Peter seeing burial garments described as linens? You have to ask yourself, Peter, what are you, what are you thinking? Do you feel, still feel the blasphemous vomit and the profanity still on your lips? What would you say? What, would you, what were you thinking that just three nights earlier in Caiaphas's court, you denied Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is huge for the resurrection of Christ, says that there was a private meeting between Jesus and Peter. You might be asking yourself the question, what did Jesus say? Peter, what did you say? If you have shame, you and Peter can connect. 
And you've got to wonder about the rich guy in the Easter story. You might ask, what rich guy? A guy by the name of Joseph from the town of Arimathea, town of Judea. You have to ask yourself and hold yourself back this question, why didn't you step up earlier? The Bible tells us that Joseph was a member of the council, the religious council. He was a good and rich, a good and righteous man, excuse me, who didn't go along with the ruling council of putting Jesus to death, but rather he showed great courage even to the fact of putting his future career on the line and he offered his own private tomb. So if you're someone who lives with regrets, you could associate with Joe. But the one that I want you to really ponder and the one that I want you to really think about is what happened on the last couple of hours of Jesus' life before he died. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about these two characters. In fact, it doesn't give us any background or any history or backstory or description. All it calls them literally are criminals and robbers and thieves. The cross of Christ has been considered the greatest piece of art ever in history. And in many churches and in many descriptions, you will see not only a single cross, but a cross on the left and a cross on the right. And that's the exchange that I want you to think about and ponder for just a second. Those two thieves, Matthew 27, 44, tell us initially that in the sixth hour of Christ's death on the cross, they both gathered and they gathered along with the crowd, I should say, excuse me, they as well mocked and taunted Jesus. What they said, we don't know. But somewhere in that period of time, the six hours that they were all on the cross, something switched, something happened, something changed with one of the thieves. Can you see it? Let me paint the picture. It looks like this. One of the thieves talks to Jesus and says this in Luke chapter 23. He says, one of the criminals looks at Christ and he said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. That's what one of the thieves says. The other thief goes around Christ and talks to the other thief and says this, don't you fear God? Since we are under the same sentence, we're punished justly for we're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then this thief speaks directly to Jesus. Listen to what he says. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Wow. Alistair Berg, who's a pastor in Cleveland, many people have appreciated his ministry, says, don't lose the hilarious insight of what happened next. What happened next? Well, when the thief got up to heaven, the admitting angel said, how did you get here? And the thief said, I don't know. And the admitting angel says, what do you mean you don't know? The thief said, the one in the middle said I could come. The admitting angel said, let me get my supervisor. The supervisor said, do you have anything on church membership? Did you ever go to a Bible study? Did you ever step foot in a synagogue? Did you ever know anything about some of the doctrinal statements? No, but I knew him. You see, the question that many of us ask is what, happen, what happens after you die? Maybe a more appropriate question in light of Easter is, do you know this one called me? Do you know this one who rose from the dead? 
the one who our whole life is staked on. Christians for 2,000 years have based their entire hope on the bodily and physical resurrection of Christ. Now, critics or skeptics or people will say, I am so glad you believe in that. Good for you. That is so nice. I'm glad you find comfort in that. And some even will discredit the witness of a 500-person event that Jesus showed up for. There's an illustration in American history that might be helpful to you. It comes from an event that happened nearly 50 years ago. And that 50-year-ago event was what was called Watergate. It happened in March of 1973, and even as a young boy, pre-adolescent, when President Nixon resigned and he walked onto a plane and he flashed the peace signals, I, I remember thinking, this is significant. I don't know what's going on here, but this is pretty significant in our country. Chuck Colson is the guy with glasses there. You recognize President Nixon. And the other guy is John Dean. Chuck Colson went on to found a ministry in prisons, and until his death, every Easter Sunday, he would be in a prison telling men and women about the person of Jesus Christ. But he was right there in Watergate, and he tells this story. Let me answer a question and use an event that I know a lot, of, a lot about. This is Chuck Colson speaking, Watergate. You see, before all the facts about Watergate were known to the public in March of 1973, it was becoming clear to Nixon's closest aides that someone had to cover up the Watergate break-in. There were no more than a dozen of us. Could we maintain a cover-up to save the president? Consider that, we were, consider that we were political zealots. We enjoyed enormous political power and prestige. With all that was at stake, you'd expect us to be capable of maintaining a lie to protect the president. But we couldn't do it. The first one to crack was John Dean. First, he told the president everything, and then just two weeks later, he went to the prosecutors, and he offered to testify against the president. His reason, as he candidly admits in his memoirs, was to save his own skin. After that, everyone started scrambling to protect themselves. What we know today is the great Watergate cover-up lasted only three weeks. Some of the most powerful politicians in the world, and we couldn't keep alive for more than three weeks. So to the question of the historicity of Christ's resurrection, can anyone believe that for 50 years, Jesus' disciples were willing to be ostracized, beaten, persecuted, and all but one suffer a martyr's death without ever renouncing their conviction that they had seen Jesus bodily resurrected. Does anyone really think the disciples could have maintained a lie all that time under that kind of pressure? No, someone will crack just as we did so easily in Watergate. Someone will have acted as John Dean did and turned state's evidence there would be some kind of smoking gun or a deathbed confession. Colson concludes with these words. So why didn't the disciples crack? Because they had come face to face with the living God. They could not deny what they had seen. The fact is that some people will give their lives for what they believe is true, but they will never give their lives for what they know is a lie. The Watergate cover-up proves that 12 powerful men in modern America couldn't keep a lie and that 12 powerless men and many women, I would add, couldn't have been telling anything but the truth. This me, this me that Jesus refers to himself, showed his glory, and it was never snuffed out. His glory changed in seven days leading up to Easter, and especially after Easter, in this way, he got physically close to us. 
physically close. He showed that to Mary, the Mag Magdalene. You would think that maybe it was his mannerisms, his Galilean accent, the way he smiled, his voice, but she didn't recognize him. A new gardener had come at dawn. She more than likely had seen Jesus die. Blood and water come outside. Maybe, maybe you're thinking that would never happen to me. I would have noticed Jesus right away. I would have picked up his mannerisms. I would have picked up the sound of his voice. Well, the disciples didn't. They spent three years with Jesus, and in Luke chapter 24, they thought he was a ghost. And <laughs> he said, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. Touch me. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed his hands and feet. And while they still didn't believe him, because of joy and amazement, they said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in his presence. And I bet you the disciples was going, were going, man, I hope we cut the V-bones out of that thing. But this me, this resurrected, victorious, alive me, graphically showed his glory. What do I mean by that? Well, in Jesus' day, there was one particular piece of architecture that was prominent in Jerusalem. Everyone knew about it. In fact, Jesus got in trouble because he said he'd tear it down and restore it in three days. It was Herod's temple. It was incredible. If you want to see what it's like, just Google Herod's great temple and you'll see it. It's massive, massive, massive. And the center of that was the temple where they worshiped and the most a uh, sacred place was the place called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, where only one time a year the high priest would go in and make a sacrifice. And there was a veil. There was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies. Here's how big it was. This veil was immense. See this uh, organ pew? And if you go all the way over here to this step, this is about 30 feet. That's how wide this veil was. That's how wide the veil was. You want to know how high it was? Look at the top of the sanctuary. That is ballpark 30 feet and go twice as high. That's 60 feet. You want to know how thick it was? It was three inches thick. It was made of 72 different pieces of fabric, and those pieces of fabric were worn, were, were welded together with 24 cords. Jewish Midrash says that it took 300 priests to move it, to move it. And when Jesus died, graphically, the veil was ripped from bottom to top, not a chance, from top to bottom. Our church has been involved in going through a series on the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is all about shadows and, and pointing and types, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. In fact, these are two of our verses that we're going to be memorizing and we want to commit to our heart. In the book of Hebrews, we just studied this last week. It said this, Hebrews 9, 11. It said, when Jesus came as a high priest of the good things that are now ready here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. What's your point? My point is this. Graphically, this me, known as Jesus, said, Welcome! You are welcome! That veil, what was on that veil, scholars say there were all kinds of pictures of creation. 
And when that veil was ripped, it was like paradise was open all again and said, you are welcome here. This me physically came close, still does. This me graphically showed who he was, and this me victoriously defeated death. Repeatedly, again and again and again, there were eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus showing up to people. Even a non-Christian Jewish scholar said that followers of Christ believed in a resurrected king. In your bulletin this morning, I put something called the case for resurrection. I'd have you take a look at that and ponder it later. I've been finding it really helpful to think about that. And there's a couple things I just want to point out. And by the way, if you're watching online, go to our website, download the bulletin. You can find it there as well, too. I found it really helpful to me. And uh, in part one, section two, were the disciples lying about the resurrection? You've got to process this. You've got to think about this. The people local to the event would have known it was a lie. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, that there were still 500 people who could testify to having seen Jesus after his resurrection. 500 people. Think about that. On the backside, on part two, the one that jumped out at me, on part two, where the disciples' observations distorted later, in the earliest accounts of the disciples' activity after the crucifixion, they are seen citing the resurrection of Jesus as their primary piece of evidence that Jesus was from God. From the earliest days of the Christian movement, eyewitnesses were making this claim. In the earliest reports, the Gospel of Mark, they were still alive. Those, those eyewitnesses were still alive when all of these claims came. The death of Christ was finalized in Jesus. It was re Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was bloodied. He was scarred. He was condemned. He was executed. He was dead. But when he was arose... It changed everything. The cross is not a piece of jewelry, but it's where our sins are laid. And it's the declaration that he is one. He is the death slayer. I want you to meet Amy and Ryan Green. They're from Colorado. They know all too well about death and the reality of death. Their little boy by the name of Joel was diagnosed with brain cancer, and it seemed anything but a game. And they created a video game called Dragon Cancer, the Dragon Cancer. When they originally created the game, Joel was still alive, and they were hoping that God would do an amazing work of healing, but God chose not to do that, and their son was taken to cancer. The game goes on. It's a two-hour game. It's an interactive game, and you can't beat the game. The, the player, the parent, can't beat the game. But Amy and Ryan are Christians. They're from Colorado, and they introduce the dragon slayer, the one who has promised to be with us in the valley of the shadows, in the valleys of the shadow of death. And you are introduced to the dragon slayer, the one who through death, the death of death in his death. Think of that. The death, the finality of death in his death. All because of what Christ has done. 
A lot can change in seven days. And it all centers around him. The dragon slayer, the conqueror, the one who is risen from the dead, the one that we have declared this Easter Sunday. Do you know him? If you searched how many words are in the Bible, you would find out this word. You'd find out this number, 788,280 words in the King James. 788,280 words in the King James. But if you'd want to summarize all of the words and the meaning in the Bible, it could be summarized in 20 words. I might oversimplify it, but it'd be a good start. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, he entered our mess. He stepped into our broken world. That's what he did. So I'm going to give you an Easter gift. You might not think it's a gift because it's a pop quiz. I hate pop quizzes. I had pop quizzes in high school in my chemistry class. I was with my godson last weekend having dinner with his parents. And I said, what are you working on, Ethan? What's your homework? He said, chemistry. I said, I'm out. I said, chemistry busted my chops in high school. Talk to Julie. So I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Now, look at these questions and think through them very clear carefully. Number one, everyone born is a child of God. True or false? Think. Did you answer false? Probably not what culture and narrative says. Second question, everyone born is God's creation. True or false? That's true. The difference is him. If you know him, you are a child of God. Romans 6.23, what I quoted before, let me quote again. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. You come by way of repentance, by saying, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness. You look at him. He became guilty of lying, of filthy. He became guilty of our filthy and dirty secret sins, even the ones that cause you great shame. One Christian writer said, the most important word in the Bible is the New Testament, H-U-P-E-R, Hooper. You go, what in the world is that? It's a little Greek word that means on behalf of or in behalf of. It's the substitution of Christ on our behalf. He paid the price for our sin and his conquering death. He is not a dead savior that we serve. He is a living Lord. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, if you go to Israel and you go to one of the garden tombs, you'll see this. Romans 1 4 says this, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He loves you. And he willingly desires to forgive you. The cross confronts all of us. But the victory of the empty tomb is the seal. We deserve judgment over our dysfunctions and our addictions and the demons that we have like Mary. We deserve judgment over our profanity and the way that we act in a way that we don't want to act like Peter did. We deserve judgment over regrets and actions we didn't do or take time to do, like Joseph of Arimathea. And 
like the criminals, oh man, we got stuff in our past. That's a mess. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, when you ask Christ into your heart, does it make everything rosy and perfect? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, it's hard, but the good news is this, is that we're not left alone. We're not left alone, even in difficult. And so before I give you an opportunity to process and think about either asking Christ into your heart or taking a spiritual temperature of your own heart with the Lord, let me tell you this story. I watched this man for a couple years, and I desire to learn from older leaders, people who are just a little ways ahead of me. And I watched an older leader process death in an incredible way. His name is Dr. Tony Evans. Dr. Evans is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Evans has been an incredible Bible teacher. He spoke for Promise Keepers for years and years and years, and I watched his life for a couple years in this way. Over a course of two years, he experienced the death of his dad, his sister, his brother, his niece, and then he watched his sweet wife of nearly 50 years, Lois, die of cancer. They called all kinds of national leaders and people to pray for Lois, and she passed away. I watched this, and this fall, a book came out by Dr. Lewis, by, excuse me, Dr. Evans and his four kids, and you see them around Dr. Dr. Uh, Evans is right in the middle there. He's smiling at you. And they wrote a book called Divine Disruption. And my son got this for me for Christmas. All of his kids spoke at the funeral. And his youngest boy shares this story. I asked the Lord, where are you? Didn't you hear us calling? Why didn't you do what we asked God? Your word says that if we abide in you and your word abides in us, then we can ask whatever we desire and it will be given to us. And your word tells us that if we ask according to your will, that you hear us. Mark 11 says, if we pray believing, we will receive. Philippians 4 says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, make your requests known. So my question to God is, where are you? This was an opportunity for us to see your glory. And as I was wrestling with the Lord, he whispered and answered me. You don't understand the nature of my victory, God said. Just because I didn't answer your prayers in your way doesn't mean I haven't answered your prayer anyway. Victory always belonged to your mother. There was only two answers to your prayer. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was really going to live. She was either going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Victory was assured regardless. The two answers to your prayer are always yes and yes because victory belongs to Christ Jesus. I am the sovereign God and my game plan is far bigger than any one player on the field. So trust in me with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean on me because only I have the ability to make a crooked situation straight. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts above your thoughts. I appreciate your prayers and trust, but I'm God. Don't tell me how to get my glory. Don't come to me with entitlement. Without my victory, all you would, all you would be would be on the doorsteps of hell. Final paragraph. 
I know it was hard for you to watch your, mother's your mother die, but I watched my son die so your mother could live. My grace is sufficient for you. What a word. So it's Easter Sunday. It's a chance for you to process and wonder, where are you at in relationship with this king, with this one whose tomb is empty? I hope you don't stop and think that it's just a nice thing, that it's a sentimental, religious it's a holiday. This changes everything because he's alive, and the fact is he will come back again. He will come back again to rescue us. So if you've never asked Christ into your heart, I'm going to give you a, an opportunity to do that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask Christ into your heart. And maybe, just maybe, you're sitting here thinking, I believe in God. I really do, but I don't want to get too serious. You see, after Jesus rose and he ascended, he told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. What is that all about? Well, to oversimplify, to be a disciple was this, to know what the rabbi knows and to do what the rabbi does. Simplified, sure, but it's basic. So I ask you this question, if you believe in God, are you doing what the God in the flesh has called us to do? Which is follow me. You say, I have no idea where, where to go with that. Well, at our Welcome Center, there's a simple book. It's free of charge. We won't track you or be creepy about it or anything like that. If you want to grab one, you can. It's just simply, it's a, called a life book. And it's the story of one of those guys who ran to the tomb by the name of John. And it talks about who this person, Jesus, is. And you can take it. It's free of charge. Maybe you're here this morning and thinking to yourself, I have lots and lots of more questions. You've talked about you and me and him. I've got a lot more questions. Well, then I have a book for you. It's called The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. This is also at the Welcome Center. Take one. Take one. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're in a holy place. This place, has, we've asked Christ to come here. And if God is knocking on your heart's door, this is a Sunday for you to have peace with God. You can pray a simple prayer that goes like this. Just repeat line after line. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you. Come into my heart. Make me clean. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Wash me and make me new. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ and with full authority of the scriptures, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you have eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. Now, it's very, very important, very important to tell someone what you just did. The person that you came with, maybe pull them aside before your meal or whatever, and just say, hey, I prayed that prayer. I need some help to walk and follow Christ. They're not going to shame you. They want to help you. We're so glad you're here. This day is new. I'm going to have you stand. And we're going to sing. I'm going to invite my friend Tim Anderson up this morning. And if you have some questions...
along with Pastor Kurt Madison. Kurt, would you wave at us right in the back there? Maybe you want to say, man, I got a ton of more questions. I'd like to talk with someone. And my friend John Lutz, I saw you, John. And uh, John and Tim and Kurt will be up here. If you'd like to talk with any of the three, they're all three on our elder board. Doesn't mean they're old. They, well, they're kind of old. Um, <laughs> but they've been recognized by our church as having spiritual maturity. They'd love to visit with you more. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning that we've had to worship you and adore you, to lift up your name in praise, and now receive this final word, this final hymn of praise. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.